Welcome to the 2024 Litigation Forecast podcast series, where our litigation and dispute resolution team shares its predictions and recommendations for business in the year ahead, brought to you by Minter Ellison Rudd Watts. My name is Jane Standage, a partner in the litigation team, and I'm here with my fellow litigation partner, Andrew Horn. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the latest on climate change litigation and what's happening overseas. Before we begin, please note that nothing we are discussing today is legal advice, and all information in this podcast is correct as at the date of recording on 8 February 2024. So Andy, just to set the scene, we're discussing a growing frontier of litigation caused by some real-world impacts. We're seeing changing weather patterns and associated impacts uh, increasing faster than we and anticipated and we see that in Cyclone Gabrielle um, which happened last year. Sure Jane we're also seeing things that we might call transitional impacts which are equally powerful and happening now such as government regulation and action and we may see a different emphasis on that because of the new government. Uh, investors and consumers reaction, shifting attitudes where say consumers question the carbon footprint and want companies to accurately report on their climate actions and things like stranded assets and changing business models, uh, where the value of assets and businesses are shifting because of the effects of climate change. And we're also seeing the liability impacts of this flowing through, and this is really relevant to litigation risk. So it's now widely recognised that company directors and senior managers have a duty to take at least the financial implications of climate change into account. And we're seeing that legal claims advancing climate-related issues are becoming more prevalent and a major source of risk. Globally, 560 new cases have been filed since 2021. And there are a number of different ways that these claims can be brought. A number of them are brought by regulators who are challenging misleading claims made by companies, which they refer to as greenwashing and also the possibility of private claims by activists against governments or corporates. Now, just yesterday, uh, New Zealand's Supreme Court handed down a landmark climate change decision, which I'll talk about today. That's the case of Smith and Fonterra. Climate change litigation is really a developing frontier, and what we're seeing increasingly is that climate change activists are turning to the courts to hold to account those that they perceive as being directly or indirectly responsible for climate change. And the Supreme Court's decision in Smith and Fonterra is a landmark decision because it's an unusual case in a common law jurisdiction in that it allows a private individual to bring claims based on climate change against private corporates. Now, I should say for completeness that Minter Ellison Rudd Watts is representing two of the defendants in the Smith and Fonterra case. So we have an involvement in it. The decision is important because it is a rare success by an activist litigant against a corporate defendant, not a government defendant, but a private corporation in a climate change case in a common law jurisdiction. We have seen other claims like this succeed in civil law countries like in Europe, but they're very rarely successful in common law jurisdictions like New Zealand, the UK, most of the United States, uh, Australia. What it does is open up the possibility of other activist litigation against corporate defendants relating to their carbon emissions or other aspects of their operations that might have an adverse environmental effect. The decision of the Supreme Court not to allow a strikeout means that it's going to be more difficult for corporates to use the strikeout procedure to bring them to an end quickly and efficiently. It's much easier just to apply to a court to strike out a claim using legal argument on the basis that it has no legal prospect of success than it is to go all the way through a full trial when you have to hear evidence. Uh, it, it takes much, much longer and it's much more expensive. 
So looking at what this case is about, the plaintiff is Mike Smith, who's an elder of Napui and Ngāti Kahu, and a climate change spokesman for an organisation called the Iwi Chairs Forum, which was a, a national iwi organisation. And he claims a connection to coastal land up in the north of New Zealand, which he says is threatened by climate change. He brought legal claims using the traditional common law torts of public nuisance and negligence, and a proposed new tort that we haven't seen before relating specifically to climate change. These are common law causes of action, which rely upon one person's conduct doing harm to another person. And essentially what Mr Smith's claim is, is that large emitters or organisations that in some way indirectly facilitate large climate change emissions are causing damage to the land that he has a traditional connection to. Because it's coastal, those emissions can result in rising sea levels, which will affect the utility of that land for him and his whanau. As I said, the High Court and Court of Appeal had said that that claim was legally untenable and could be struck out without needing to go to a trial for a number of reasons. But essentially, the main reason was that common law torts are what we call relational which means that you have to show that the action of your defendant caused the harm suffered by the plaintiff. And that's easy to see if you have a house next to a mushroom factory and the mushroom factory causes emanations which get into your house and cause mould and damage and so forth. It's much harder with carbon emissions because we are all emitters. Every one of us drives a car or rides a bus to work or lives in a house um, which has central heating or heating of some sort. And each one of us is affected to some extent by climate change. And it's been caused by generational impacts too. And, you know, People before us have also caused this impact to people. Yeah, that's right. And it's very hard to say. The emissions that I create when I drove my car to work today are going to affect you, Jane, because um, you hung your washing out this morning and it rained and it wouldn't normally have rained or, or some <laughs> such thing. And, and, and that's, that sounds a little flippant, but the reality is that no one emitter anywhere in the world is emitting more than a very, very tiny fraction of all of the carbon emissions that have happened since the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. So it's very hard to show a causal link between somebody's activities and harm to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that was the challenge that Mr Smith faced and the reason that essentially the High Court and Court of Appeal struck out his claims. And what sort of comment did the court give about the novel cause of action? Well, well, that was one of the reasons that the Supreme Court said we're not going to allow this to be struck out. It has to go to a full trial is they said that because this is a novel claim, we've never had a private individual bring a climate claim against private companies before, then we should have a full trial so we can hear all the evidence Mm. and decide in light of all the evidence and full legal submission whether or not this case has any legs, Mm. rather than doing it on the basis that we haven't heard any evidence and we haven't had full legal argument. So that was one of the reasons. And and in principle, novel claims may be harder to strike out than claims where the courts have heard a number of claims of a similar type. Yes, yes. And this is something that could encourage litigants to bring new or novel types of activist claims. They might say, well, sure, no one's ever heard of this sort of claim before. Another thing the court said was that the fact that the government has quite a comprehensive legislative regime to deal with carbon emissions and climate change, such as the provisions under the Climate Change Response Zero Carbon Amendment Act and the Resource Management Act, That doesn't mean to say that private individuals can't bring their own claims. Just because you are complying with resource management law and carbon credits law doesn't mean to say that someone can't sue you on the basis that they are personally being affected by what you do in a way that's unreasonable. The court also said that the fact that the plaintiff was going to have a challenge proving that the defendant's emissions caused his specific loss, as I said before, wasn't a bar to him bringing the claim. 
So one of the findings the court made that is going to be really important is that only substantial and unreasonable emitters will be caught. So the claim will only succeed if a plaintiff proves that the defendant's actions were a substantial and unreasonable infringement of his or her rights. And that could be quite difficult for business planning because, you know, what, what is that standard and how is that applied to the particular business? The, the court said that this is a significant threshold that only some emitters will meet. Mm-hmm. And the judgment says that people who drive cars or heat their homes, for instance, won't be caught. But if you're a very large firm making very substantial emissions, then you might be. It does raise some interesting questions. Does that mean a large oil company might be caught, but a small oil oil company won't be? Mm-hmm. And interesting questions about how you draw a distinction between the large company that supplies the fuel for all the motor vehicles and all the many motor vehicles that are driven as a result of that fuel, mm. because neither of them can exist without the other. Uh, finally, the court said that one of the reasons that the claim was allowed to proceed was that the remedies that were sought were declarations, which are simply the court stating that a breach has occurred without anything more, and injunctions, which are an order by the court that someone change their behaviour in some way. The plaintiff wasn't seeking money compensation, and the court said that if he had been seeking damages, money compensation, then the test would have been quite different. And there's an indication in the judgment that he would have had to prove causation to a high standard. With respect to injunctions, the court also said that the court has a very wide discretion as to what relief to order, and it can tailor its its orders if an injunction is ordered to make sure that the orders don't have too much of a, a disadvantage in terms of effect. So that's the case in, in essence. It's a case that's going to encourage people to bring activist litigation in relation to climate change issues, I would say. Yeah, and I think globally it's going to be an interesting case. We know that NGOs and activists around the world are watching and learning from different jurisdictions, and so we can imagine that this will be a hot topic for people to be looking at overseas as well as in New Zealand. So in terms of um, what's happening overseas, perhaps we should um, work through that now, Andy. One of the key pieces of litigation that we've seen in the UK, um, which is the first of its kind, was Client Earth and Shell in the UK. And what we're seeing now is large activist groups and NGOs are strategically buying shares in companies with high emissions to enable them to influence decision making and also to bring what we call derivative actions as shareholders. This was the first of its kind. It was Client Earth um, uh, and the Shell UK directors and they uh, sued for alleged deficiencies in uh, Shell's climate change risk management strategy uh, and its response to a Dutch ruling that Shell owed a duty of care to reduce its emissions. So, Client Earth alleged that the directors had breached their duties by failing to set an appropriate emissions target uh, and failing to manage the climate risk to establish a reasonable basis for achieving the net zero target they had set in line with the Paris Agreement 1.5 degrees. Celsius temperature target. And so interestingly, the High Court dismissed um, application on the basis that they did not establish a prima facie case. And some of the key reasons for the dismissal, which will be, I think, poured over by uh, activists and NGOs around the world, was that there was a lack of agreement as to the methodology to reduce emissions so that they couldn't show evidence of what was the one right way that Shell directors should have been telling the company to go ahead and reduce emissions. Client Earth accepted that the directors did have policies and targets to achieve net zero, just that they disagreed with those plans. So the court said given the size and complexity of Shell UK, the directors would need to take into account a range of competing considerations, and that is a classic management decision which the court is ill-equipped to interfere. There was no success in this case, but 
we can bet that others in other jurisdictions will be looking at this to see how they could craft cases that would better fit the set of criteria. So um, we can see that being a, another avenue for directors to be liable in the future. Uh, so Jane, what's happening in Australia? So they've been a really active jurisdiction. So the regulators have been quite quick relatively to bring out their first greenwashing claims. So a number of superannuation funds who got hearings on the pending um, in relation to um, issues, alleged issues with their investment screens application. So saying, making ESG claims and allegations that they have not complied with those investment screens. The ACCC has issued a lot of guidance on green claims following quite a substantial exercise reviewing large companies' websites to see what types of green claims were being made. There's also been a number of cases in Australia about accurate and transparent disclosure. And so Abrahams was one of the cases that uh, is a 2021 case, but it bears um, repeating a little bit here. So the, the background to that was that Abrahams had brought a proceeding in 2027 alleging that CBA had failed to adequately disclose its climate change-related risks in its annual report. And that case settled with the CBA promising to issue further disclosures and pledging to undertake climate change scenario analysis to ensure that its business lending policies were supporting the transition to net zero by 2050. But it didn't end there. And in 2021, quite interestingly, relying on provisions in the Australian Corporations Act, the Abrahams Family Trust, which was involved in the original proceeding, sought orders to inspect CBA's internal documents in relation to seven oil and gas projects. And they sought the documents to check whether a CBA was complying with its environmental and social policies. And so the court did grant access, but as to date, no claim has arisen from that. But presumably, if those commitments had not been met in a material way, there would have been a potential for a claim to be brought. Do you think that could happen here? Oh, absolutely. We've got the same provisions in our Companies Act that could be used to inspect records. And so that's another avenue that businesses should be thinking about that, you know, you've got the new disclosures regime coming in, but there's also this other avenue under the Companies Act to get the records um, of your internal workings and things like that. And um, in Canada, they've had quite a bit of regulatory action going on. They've had a shareholder advocacy group alleging that Canada's five big banks have engaged in misleading disclosure about sustainable finance. And it's alleged the banks, amongst other things, have not disclosed the emissions impact of the deals and that possibly some ESG deals are increasing rather than decreasing emissions. So you can see there's just a proliferation of the types of things um, that we can expect potentially in the future in New Zealand here. Well, that's all we've got time for today. We'll soon be releasing our litigation forecast for 2024, which will be available on our website at minterellison.co.nz. We'll also shortly be releasing the other podcasts in this series. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review, or follow Minterellis and Rudwatts. You can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at minterellison.co.nz.